0: Uh, My name is Jeremy. Uh, I was here a few weeks back, uh, in case you were here. In case you weren't, I'm still Jeremy. Uh, My wife is here this morning with us. She is the children's director, Megan Drake, in case you didn't know her. She's awesome. I was hoping there'd be applause, but whatever. (laughs) Uh, So, real quick, I want to tell you all, I had a horrible dream last night. I was telling Megan about this this morning. But in my dream, I was doing this lesson. And uh, I had, like, the intro part, and then in the middle of it, I turned around, and there was, like, two, three rows of people, like, sitting up here on the stage behind me. And I was like, oh, cool. And so I get through the intro part, and I was going to turn to, we're going to be in the book of Job. And I was like, all right, well, let me get into the book of Job. And then I opened my Bible, and my, my Bible had turned into a different book altogether. And I was, like, flipping through it and going, "Where?" Um, and, like, looking around, and people started, like, chattering and stuff, and I'm like... Uh, and I'm like looking through it, and then I closed my Bible, and I turned around at the other way, and opened up the backwards way, and it was another different book, and I'm like flipping through it, and there's like medieval paintings of religious paintings and stuff in this book, I'm like, what's going on? And then slowly, after I sat there and flipped through this book for several minutes, finally everything was done, and there was like transition, and everybody was just moving, and so I got like a quarter of the way through the lesson, didn't get to finish it, and then my Bible turned into a different book, and uh, I remember in my dream, I was trying to explain to Melina in the back like no my bible look my bible is a different book now and she's like oh yeah. And uh <laughs> so anyway, making sure that's not happening today. My bible is still a bible. It is not magically turned turned into something else. So praise God for that. All right, so uh uh we're going to be in the book of Job mostly towards the end of it. We'll, we'll get to we'll get to that in just a minute. But um so Job, in case you don't know, is is one of the older stories, one of the older books in the Bible. It, uh, the most common uh, consensus is that it occurs during the uh, pre-temple period, and it's called the patriarchal time, and so that means that there was the father who was the head of the household was basically like the priest of his family, and so anytime there was like a, a sacrifice or something needed to be made, the, the father would go do that for the family in, in place, and so it was kind of like he was the priest and his house was the temple and, and his family were the congregation kind of deal. So it's a really old story. Um, it takes place probably about the middle of the book of Genesis. If you were going to stick it in the book of Genesis somewhere in there, uh, somewhere in that place. But so it's a, it's a really old, really old story. And, um, it's, it's kind of written in a way that's, uh, it's, it's like monologues. So in case we'll get through the layout here in just a second, but it's a lot of monologues of Job and then his friends would talk and long monologues. And, uh, they may or may not have actually spoken in long monologues. It might be more of a summary of what they said. But uh, but also something to note is that in general, uh, Middle Eastern languages, in Hebrew especially, are very poetic in nature. And so it is a very poetic book. And, uh, and so when we went to Israel a few years back, and they taught us a few words and a few phrases and stuff. But one of them was to say, you say good morning, and to say that you say boker tov. And the reply was boker or, which means morning of light. And so it's kind of a poetic way. You wouldn't say that here in America. Our English, or English, at least the German roots, is very pragmatic. Like, good morning, good morning, that's it. We don't say, morning of light, you know, nothing like that. But so if you read Job, it's a, it's a lot of poetic language. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. Uh, a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not allegories. Pictures and stuff, and I don't know. It's uh, it's a lot more poetic than what you would think just uh, regular language languages. But, uh, but one of the things it deals with... Is, uh, and it's is fitting that it's one of the older stories that deals with one of the older, oldest questions that we have about either God or, or, we, or suffering. And the question that you've probably heard several times is either a phrase, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, or why do we suffer? And that's kind of, since the dawn of time, people have been asking the question, why do we suffer? And basically, every religion, every uh, philosophy, or whatever else you might come up with, all of those things have basically tried to answer that question of why do we suffer. And so uh, we will see what Job has to say about it, more specifically the last five chapters of Job, which is basically focused on God's response to Job. Uh, I was joking with Megan yesterday that she said, what are you talking about? And I said, "Uh, uh, Job. And she goes, yeah, what are you talking about? And I said, well, we're just going to read the entire book of Job, all 42 chapters. And uh, whatever you get out of that, you get out of that. But uh, no, we're not doing that. We'll be at the end of it. And so uh, we're going to read God's response to Job. I'll give you a summary of kind of what happens, and then we're going to read God's response, starting in chapter 38. Uh, but before we do that, and before we see kind of God's answer to Job's question about suffering, uh, I want to I ask, or let's talk about the question of who is God? And so I'm going to present that to you, if you have an answer. Who or what is God? creator. That's a good one. Who else? Unchanging. He's an unchanging creator. It's not a trick question, so. Anybody else? It's kind of an important question to know the answer to. Okay. He has total authority. He is an unchanging creator. He has total authority. Okay. Anybody else? <laughs> We're going to actually wrote that down. But you can. Sure. All right. All right, so in case you don't know what she was singing, there is a, uh, there's a book that uh, Megan bought, and it kind of helps uh, lay out a whole bunch of this stuff, but it's called uh, The New City Catechism. In case you don't know what a catechism is, it's like a layout of questions and answers about uh, who God is, what who is man, what is man, what is sin, who is Christ, all those kind of things. And it gives answers that are based on Scripture. But uh, this one in particular has like long answers that adults are supposed to memorize, and then shorter answers broken down out of that that children are supposed to memorize. And a lot of times they're in the form, or actually they're all in the form of a song. And so we'll listen to them in the van, and the kids will kids will sing them. So if you ask one of my 15 kids, what is God, they'll say, <laughs> before it gets, They'll say, God is the creator of everyone and everything, and that's the answer. But the full answer is, so the question is, what is God? And the answer is, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. And so in the reference scripture in there, I wanted to read that to you. Is out of uh, Psalm uh, chapter eighty six, and by the way, if you ever if you're ever teaching in the mornings, put bookmarks where your scripture is. This is the first time I've ever done that because otherwise you'll be like it's uh it's in Psalm, anybody else know Psalm something. So anyway, Psalm chapter eighty six, uh, verses eight through ten and verse fifteen. It says, "There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord." And shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And the verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And talking about the eternality of God, uh, that reminded me of uh, Psalm, ni- Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God is eternal. Eternity past, eternity future, he's eternal. He's the creator, like y- y'all said. He's the uh, uh, unchangeable, I think is, is what Chris said. He is eternal. And so who created God? Nobody. You can say no, nobody. Who is greater than God? Nobody. Does God have an equal? No. These are not trick questions. Is there anything God can't do? No. So here's a here's a here's a riddle for you. It's a uh, I think it's pretty old but it says can God create a rock so big that he himself cannot lift it? So if he can create a rock so big that he can't lift it, that means there's a thing that he cannot lift. He can impose limitations on himself. Okay. But if you say no he can't create a rock so big that he can't can't lift it. Then you say, then there's things he can't create, which limits God as well. It's a silly question, but my answer to that is a simple question. is uh, The answer is yes. He would create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it, and then he would lift it. And So if anybody ever asks you that question to try to trip you up, just say that. Yes. Then he would lift it. Take that riddle. All right, so... Getting back into Job, now that we've kind of looked at who God is established that a little bit, and uh, there's plenty of... Those are only like two scriptures that I pulled out of here, but I mean, if you want to know anything about the character of God, pretty much any story in the entire Bible will give you a little bit about the character of God, and especially in Job, uh, you'll get a lot of that. But just to kind of summarize Job a little bit, and um, you may have read Job before, read through it, read a few pieces out of it, uh, but it's basically... Um, God is bragging about Job to Satan and uh, saying he's a righteous man. He's uh, more righteous than anybody else. Uh, have you seen him? And Satan says, well, of course he's righteous because you've given him everything. He has, I mean, it talks about his wealth and his uh, his sheep and his cattle and his family and all this kind of fancy stuff that he has. And he says, but if you take all that away from him, he, he will curse you. And God says, all right, go ahead. Take it all away from him. And uh, so God permits this, which, by the way, means that God is in charge of this, not Satan. Satan asks for a mission. God says, fine, do it. But if God said no, he could have done this, and Satan could have fell over dead, and uh, nothing would have ever happened. But then we wouldn't have had the book of Job. And so uh, all of Job's families, all of his children are killed. They're, like, in a house, and the house falls over and kills all of them during a party. Uh, Raiders come by and kill all of his livestock. All of his, all of his belongings are stolen. Basically, and it happens like in rapid succession. There's people that run into his house and say, "All of your family was killed, and only I was left." And then somebody runs in and says, "All of your livestock was destroyed, and I'm the only one that's left." And and so uh, all this happens, and then Job falls on his knees and worships God. And then so Satan comes back and says, "Well, uh, you haven't harmed him at all. So obviously, if you do, th- if I, if you allow me to do that, then he will curse you." And he says, "Fine, do that." He said, "But you can't kill him." And so he inflict, inf, uh, inflict, inflict, inflicts him with uh, sores all over his head, from head to toe. It says he's covered in sores and uh, very painful. Uh, but still, he just covers himself in ash. And he said, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But still, I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, even his wife comes to him and says, uh, why don't you just curse God and die? Which is a great thing for your wife to tell you. But his reply is, shall we receive good from God and not evil? Which otherwise, can we only receive the good things from God? Can we not accept suffering as well? If that word, and the word evil is actually in there, but if that trips you up, he's not saying God has done an evil act to me. He's saying, um, uh, shall we not accept things that happen to us that are evil, that God has permitted, basically. And you could probably translate that word evil a few different ways. But uh, suffice to say, Job is just referring to the suffering that he has received and not necessarily an evil act by God. So in all of this, Job is still still worshiping God. He's not cursing God. He's not saying that God is wrong. Uh, To this point, he has just worshiped God and and just kind of accepted his fate. And then uh, his three friends show up, which if you've ever read Job, you know these are probably three of the worst friends you could ever have. And they are Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And um, the majority of the book kind of stays in this, starting, I think, in chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37, are Job's friends telling him why this is happening to him, Job's responses back to them. And then another guy a little bit later named, named Elihu, the Buzite, comes in. He's a younger guy. We'll talk about him in a second. But uh, just to kind of give a, a basic summary of the, the the answers and the responses, Uh, they, they sit with him, I think, for seven days, just next to him while he's, he's suffering. They don't say anything, and then finally they, they start to speak. Uh, Eliphaz tells him that innocent people prosper. If you're innocent, if you haven't sinned, then good things will happen to you, which is kind of what we would usually say. If you do the right things, if you, uh, go to work on time all the time, if you treat people nicely, then good things will happen to you. Job replies, well, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. Um... His second friend Bildad, comes in and says, Repent, because you deserve what you've gotten, obviously. Uh Job says, I would. But there's nobody between me and God. There's no arbiter, is what he says. Uh there's nobody for me to appeal to to appeal to God for me. And uh God is too holy. I can't stand before him and repent. Um His next friend Zophar says, You actually deserve worse. Your sin is so great that you deserve worse than what you've ever what you've actually received. And Job's replies, the Lord is the one who did this to me. It's not my sin. It's just God who's doing this to me. Still, I will hope in him. Uh, Eliphaz comes back again. He says, you don't fear God enough. That's why you're suffering. And Job replies, miserable comforters are you. There is no hope in this life. Bildad comes back and says, well, God punishes the wicked. Wicked people deserve, get what they deserve. You've received some, uh, some wickedness on you. Obviously, you're wicked. Uh, Job's response is, actually, the wicked people prosper. He said, I see it all the time. People are wicked, and they have money, they have family, they have stuff. Uh, So what you're saying is not true. Uh, Eliphaz comes back and says, you are obviously wicked. They're sticking on that wicked thing. And Job says, I'm innocent, but God is not here for me to declare my innocence. And then Bildad says, man can't be righteous. There's just no way. He can't be righteous anyway, so obviously you deserve it. Job replies that God is high above uh, but I am still innocent, and there's no wisdom on this earth that can answer me. They used earth's wisdom. And then uh, the fourth guy, Elihu, excuse me, he's a younger guy, and he's waited till everybody else is done talking. And then he responds, and he rebukes the other three guys for not having good enough answers, and he rebukes Job for declaring his righteousness instead of God's righteousness. And uh, he doesn't necessarily accuse Job of wickedness or anything, but the three or four chapters that Elihu speaks, he talks about God's justice, his greatness, and his majesty. He basically says, how dare you question him? And so after all of that, everybody stops talking. Job declares his innocence one more time. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. After Elihu speaks, that's when God comes in. So then, in chapter 38, if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, where he says, and then God showed up. And when God shows up, it's not like another friend that's joined him at the tea party. It's, uh, it's pretty scary. So we'll start in chapter 38, if you're not already there. And uh, verses 1 through 3 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So God didn't just speak to him and just go, Job. There's a whirlwind. I don't know if you've ever been a whirlwind. I haven't, but it's kind of like a hurricane. And so in the middle of a hurricane, that's when God shows up and talks to Job. So Job, or sorry, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. In other words, who is this dummy who's asking these questions about me? He says, Stand up like a man and face me. No, no, we don't like to talk about masculinity and femininity nowadays in that kind of sense. But stand up like a man basically says, get up, because probably when the whirlwind came, they hit the deck, which anybody should do in case God shows up. And so he's like, stand up. Whoever it was that was asking me these questions, which he knew anyway. Stand up like a man and face me. And he says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So he's like, you were there in Genesis 1, right? When I was there making the earth, you were there, right? You remember all this. So did you witness or take part in any of this? Clearly you know what's going on since you're talking so much. And he continues on through chapter 38. He talks about creation and uh, basically anything you can see, he's talking about creating the seas. Were you there when the seas were created? Were you there when the mountains were created? Did you put the stars in the sky? Did you create the constellations? Did you do any of that? And then he goes on in chapter 39. we uh, We're not going to read all 39 either. But he talks about all the animals. And he says, basically, do you know what all the animals are doing right now? No, you probably know what your goat's doing. But do you know what the mountain lions are doing right now? Do you know what the, sh- the uh, sheep on the hills are doing? Do you know what the ostrich is doing? you know where their eggs are? Can you tell me any of that? And, of course, Job doesn't have an answer to any of that. And then Job 40, starting in verse 1, Job finally answers. It says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Which is really the only correct response to this. You can't, if God comes to you and says, all of, spends two chapters asking you if you know anything about anything, and your answer is no, you're going to go, But But what about, why am I suffering? Uh, you would say, I have nothing, can't say anything, I give up. Basically, I'll shut up because I don't know anything. So then God goes on to challenge Job. In verse 6, he says, uh, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, clothe yourself with glory and splendor, pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This is basically challenging Job. He says, show your power. Do the things that I do. Show me that you have the power that I have. You claim to know something and have legitimate complaint against God, so let's see your power. And in a kind of a sense, this reminds me of uh, every now and then we ask our kids at the dinner table if they uh, if there was something they liked, or what was the thing they liked about their day. And usually our daughter's response is everything. She loves everything all the time, doesn't have a bad thing about her day. But one of my other kids, and I won't, they will remain lame this, Sometimes your response is nothing. Like, what do you like about your day? Nothing. And so then, sometimes my response to that is, you don't like anything. You don't like the bed you got up out of this morning. You don't like this electricity you get every day for free. You don't like the food that you're currently eating right now. You don't like the food you ate at breakfast. Did you like the Wii? You like playing Mario Kart? You like any of that? What about the six hours y'all spent at the at the zoo today with Mama? You didn't like any of that. What about the fact that you have a Mama? What about a Daddy? You like having a Daddy? You like any of that? If you don't like anything, how about you do it yourself? I don't ever tell him that. but It's kind of the same thing. Like, I didn't like anything. I don't like anything about today. Like, fine, I will take away my blessing off of you, and you just run this thing. See how it goes. You'll die in about 14 hours. So nothing else at the very least. And this is God's response, I guess, kind of. But be happy that God doesn't just wipe you out for your stupidity which is kind of how God treats us, which is called mercy. The fact that he doesn't just go and squish you because you're a dummy. It's called mercy. All right, and then going on to chapter 40, verse 15 through 41, all the way through, uh, God highlights two mighty beasts that he created and uh, talks about their glory and their majesty and their power and the fact that he created these, and yet man can't even contend against them. And one of them refers to as behemoth, and the other one refers to as leviathan. Which behemoth is apparently something on the land, leviathan is something in the sea. These are uh, unknown. People have speculated that the behemoth might be a hippopotamus, and leviathan might be a crocodile. Um, But we don't really know, because it doesn't exactly say. He gives a lot of descriptions about how how awesome they are. But uh, if you have that picture, Melina, of what I'll speculate is leviathan... So I don't know if y'all have seen Jurassic World or the new Jurassic World, but uh, this is a Mosasaurus. And uh, if you can't tell how big he is, that's a shark, like a great white shark that he's about to eat. And this is a a kid he could knock over with his tongue. So Leviathan may or may not be a Mosasaurus. Uh, I don't know if uh, man and dinosaurs have ever been in the same place together outside of Jurassic Park. But uh, my speculation is it could be. Uh, He talks about trying to draw him out with a hook. He talks about his uh, rows of of plates and spikes on his back. Um, a whole bunch of other descriptions, descriptors that could be applied to this thing. Um, so maybe, maybe not. Next time you read that, you can go, you can put Mosasaurus in place of Leviathan and just get a good mental image for it. Uh, but anyway, that's just Jeremy's speculation. Don't, don't go home and tell your parents that Jeremy, some weird guy named Jeremy, told you that there are dinosaurs in Job. But uh, so anyway... And God, uh, for three or four chapters, God challenges Job. Have you created, I've created everything. Have you? Have you been in the middle of this? Can you even, uh, some of the most powerful animals I've created, can you do anything to them? The answer is no. So in chapter 42, Job finally repents. And he says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, which was God's question? He says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me, again referring back to God's question, chapter thirty eight. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is really the only logical response, aside from I'll shut up, that you can have to God's, uh, God's questions. And so Job does the right thing. He doesn't continue to challenge God, and I don't think you could. If he continued to challenge God, God might have wiped him out. And uh, shortly after, God rebukes Job's three friends. And so when you're reading this, you can read his, his friends' responses, and you can like underline stuff like, yeah, that sounds good. And uh, that sounds like something that, that sounds like God right there. But later on, God says, uh, he rebukes him. He says, they have not spoken rightly of me. And so uh, it's kind of a trick because you can be reading through there and underlining stuff that his friends say and that, that sound right. And then you come to the end of it and God says, no, they didn't speak rightly of me. Like, dang it. So you've got to go mark out all your underlines and stuff. And it's, it's unfortunate because I've underlined several things in, in, in Job that his friends said that I thought were cool. And then I going to find out they're wrong. So way to go, Jeremy. But he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke uh, the fourth guy, Elihu. And I'm not 100% sure why. I think it's just because Elihu extolled God. He said God is righteous. God is above everything. He doesn't necessarily say that God uh, uh, only punishes wicked people or that God only gives righteous, uh, allows uh, innocent people to have good on them. He basically just says God is a just God. God is a mighty God. God is a powerful God. And uh, so God doesn't really speak of him. That's that's my speculation again. Like the Mosasaurus thing, that's Jeremy's speculation. Uh, you don't have to take that as gospel. And then in the end, God restores all of Job's fortunes. Uh, he gives him more than he ever had before. He has more daughters than he had before. Uh, and they were considered the most beautiful women in the land. And then he lived for another 140 years after that and saw several of generations of his children live on. And then... Uh, And so Job, in the end, was uh, blessed. So, we talked about the question of why does man suffer, or why does God allow suffering? So what was God's answer to Job's question? Who are you to question me? Does he give an answer like, does he go, well, here's why, Job? Job. Let me tell you, explain to you exactly why you're suffering. No. He doesn't really give an answer. Uh, other than, like Wesson said, who are, you to, who are you to question me? Um, but if you read it, I mean, God declares Job's righteousness in the beginning and then proves Job's righteousness through his suffering because Job didn't necessarily curse God. He questioned him, but he didn't say God is, is wrong necessarily. He just said, why is this happening to me? So in a sense, through Job's suffering, his righteousness before God has been uh, declared, has been, has been um, what's the word I'm looking for? What? Proven. Proven's a good word. And so why do you think God wouldn't just tell any of this to Job? Why is his answer, how dare you question me? Why didn't he go, why didn't you sit down and tell him all these things? Just speculate if there's not like a wrong answer to this. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't notice anything, right? No. That's a good response. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So if you answered Job's question, that everybody'd be like, "Wait, why did why did I drop why did I drop my cup and why did it break? God, tell me." And God would be compelled to answer because he set a precedent. Uh, So God's answer is basically, uh, you don't have a right to question me. I'm far and above you. And it kind of made me think of uh, Proverbs 3, 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And Isaiah 55, 5, he says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. First corinthians one twenty five says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men so we can't really fully understand why things happen to us we can we can speculate and we can give uh some sort of answer to it and and, and justify it or or we can just trust in God and know that in the end of it he knows what's going on and I really think because he he kind of says when he's talking about all of creation, all that kind of stuff, he's basically saying, you don't have any idea what's going on. You don't really know. We have like a finite view of what we can see, what we can sense and feel, and we see people and we see things and we think what we know what's going on, but we have like a a limited understanding of what's really going on around us. And you can see in um, later on, Paul talks about spiritual warfare that happens around us that we don't see. And every now and then, you might get just kind of a glimpse of it. You might get just kind of a feeling of it. But I really think God's, if God told us what was really going on, we wouldn't really be even even able to handle it. If we really knew everything that was going on around us, our minds would explode. Our little pea brains would just explode. And so He'll give us little glimpses every now and then, little bitty things every now and then that we can we can kind of cling on to. But in the end of it, there's just stuff that goes that happens that we can't fully understand. And uh that's a hard, a hard, uh it's a hard thing to accept to know that. You know, we're never really going to fully understand it. Maybe on the other side of glory we'll be able to understand it. But um, but we have an imperfect view of heaven and earth and an imperfect view of God. And so we really can't fully understand everything. That's not to say give up and don't read the Bible. Uh, you can understand a lot, but we just can't fully understand everything. So just have humility when you're reading and when you when, when you know this. But, uh, uh, but a, a, a better view of God will help us in a lot of this. And so... And this is something I meant to mention earlier, but something that Mark, uh, Mark Bearden mentioned last week. It was a quote, or a paraphrase from something that uh, A.W. Tozer said, which is basically, proper worship of God depends on a proper view of God. And I looked up the actual quote, and it's a little bit more poetic than that, but that was a better way to say it, I thought. And so, uh, our view of God determines how we're going to worship him. And in Numbers 23, verse 19, He says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So God is not some affable, lovesick fairy up in the sky. He's not a hopeless romantic. He's not reckless in his love or his ways. There isn't always has been a plan in the place that's being executed according to his will. And so he's not a, like we mentioned earlier, he's unchangeable in his ways. He has a purpose for everything. So what is our response to this? Obviously, we got to know that uh, good can come from suffering. So just to kind of answer that question a little bit, a lot of times you grow a lot through suffering. You grow spiritually. Uh, you get closer to God through that. Even if at the beginning of it you kind of whine because you know it sucks to suffer. But on the other side of it, you get to see and you get to experience God fully or a lot more fully than you did before. And uh, it also helps you when you see other people suffering around you to be able to respond to that and say, well, here's what I did, here's the things I did you shouldn't do, and here's something maybe you should do. But also reevaluate your view of God. Uh, Compare what you think you know about God to Scripture and uh, where you err or if you err, repent of it and ask God to reveal truth to you. And don't be led astray by, by new-age spirituality or, or new things that you hear uh, about God that, that sound almost good, because usually it's like a, 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 a hint of truth in the midst of a big, giant lie about God. Uh, so just be careful. Like the Bible says, test every spirit. <clears throat> test everything you hear. Don't just accept things. Uh, and always compare it back to Scripture. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, what you believe about God, then it's not true. And always remember that if you are saved, then you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And I don't say Holy Spirit like, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God inside of you. Think about that. The God that created all this stuff and that talks about it in chapter 38, that mentions all these crazy things that he created, his spirit lives inside of you. You don't just have a feeble spirit that kind of hints or anything. You have... Almighty God's Holy Spirit inside of you. So if there's anything you lack, any wisdom you lack, any truth that you lack, ask God to reveal it through his Holy Spirit, and uh, he will reveal it to you. And I want to end with, um, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and y'all can flip to that if you want to. And this is also a a, a section of Scripture that Mark Bearden mentioned last week. So I'm basically listening to Mark and still stealing all his stuff. But uh, I thought this was a good almost summary or, or, or of Job or of, of kind of what we talked about with Job. <clears throat> but it says, starting in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Even though there is separation between us and God, and that is evident in, the, in Job, Job asks, says there's no arbiter, there's no one between me and God. I can't appeal my case to God uh, because God is too holy and he can't listen to me because I'm dirt. Uh, it says here at the end in verse 16, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We now have an arbiter. We have someone between us and God who can can plead our case. And that's the only way we'll be righteous before God. So let me pray. And we'll be done. And I guess if Melina has anything else, she'll let you know. Well, God, I pray that you reveal your truth to us more and more every day. Help us to understand you better, even though we can't fully understand God. Just uh, help us not to be led astray and help us to know that uh, whatever happens to us, good or bad, uh, ultimately is for your glory. It's uh, from you and for you and by you. And God, uh, uh, help us to understand and know that you are in control of all things. Uh, there's nothing that gets by you. And uh, God, you are God. And help us to always remember that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, bye.